0: Today we're talking with Jonathan Williams, Chief Economist at ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is a forum between state legislatures and private sector members who collaborate to introduce policy at the state level. Jonathan is also the author of Rich States, Poor States, which just came out with their 14th edition. We're gonna to talk to Jonathan about the new tax laws that may be introduced, about fiscal monetary policy, and how this might all impact our hotel investments. Let's see what Jonathan has to say. Jonathan, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate you joining me on T Talks. Well, thanks Uh, for
1: having me. And as always, uh, greetings from the land of make-believe out here in Washington, D.C.
0: That that is the land of make-believe. Yeah, so you got to tell us everything that's going on in Washington right now, because I don't understand anything that's happening. I don't understand the language of Washington, but we'll dive into that. So, so thank you for coming on. You, you, I'm, you're the economist. I'm going to pick on the economist. It's sort of tax season. That's why this all started. There's a lot happening in the states. There's a lot happening in the federal government. Things I want to talk about, right? Uh, st- taxes, states, federal government, uh, capital gains, uh, 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 1031 exchange, uh, inheritance tax, all the taxes. I want to talk about fiscal monetary policy. How can we print so much money? Is that going to impact us going forward? What impacts is that going to have? I mean, there's a lot going on here. So I appreciate you joining me today.
1: Well, it's it's crazy times, and you know, a bunch of states still in session trying to navigate some of these difficult policy environments, and then certainly uh, Capitol Hill's in overdrive right now with a lot of the proposals. So, look forward to, to diving into it. Uh, I like it. Let's jump in. It's too long evidently. I, I remember a few business cycles now and it's like I and a lot of the legislators that are elected these days you know have, have been elected post-financial crisis so they, they didn't live through those days and kind of the crisis that most states were going through that ended up being much worse than the current situation when it comes to revenue because did you note in your in your notes here uh, you know state and local revenue actually was up in calendar year 2020 not down which that is like Most people would think you're crazy if you said that, but it's actually true.
0: Wait, say that again, just to be clear.
1: Yes, state and local tax revenue overall in calendar year 2020 was up versus down. How is that possible? I mean, a lot of it has to do with the local, um, you know, the property valuations are just booming The real estate markets and a lot of the markets across the country. Property taxes, as a result, are just going through the roof and this is actually one of the things that i'm sure we'll we'll get to but you know talking through the assessment driven property tax you know problems out there where local governments are pocketing a lot of this extra money when it comes to these assessment valuation growths. And uh, and then all of a sudden, it's businesses and it's individuals on the hook wondering why their bills went up so much. And uh, local governments look at them square in the face and say, we just cut your tax rates. And you wonder, why is my bill higher than it was the year before? And it gets to this whole, in a way, a dishonesty problem around the assessment process for property taxes.
0: Wait, so let's get into that now. Keep going. So, I mean, and how do we avoid that? Because that's coming for all of us, or at least a fear that, that we're going to see. Property taxes are very meaningful in the hotel real estate business.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it's, uh, I, I think one of the ways to address property taxes, and this is tough at the state level, because, uh, you know, as you know, most property taxes, the vast majority of property tax burdens are levied by cities and counties and local levels of government. But, um, you know, a lot of times what happens then is, the anger around property tax burdens are directed to state capitals. And so state legislators then are, you know, in, in a way on the hook to say, we have to do something about these property tax bills because our constituents keep complaining about it. And rightly so, because the burdens are high, the bills are rising and, and there's somewhat of a lack of education sometimes of who's actually levying these property taxes, where did the burden come from? At the end of the day, studying this now over a decade or two, uh, you know, the, The the real root cause, and if we don't get to the issue of local governments are spending too much, and they're not providing core government services efficiently enough, and these hugely bloated pension plans that only exist at the state and local level for employees that don't exist in the private sector for the defined benefit Plans and just expensive ways at providing government services that could be done much better at the local level, that drives property tax burdens. And then people get justifiably upset. I just had my property tax assessment go up by 11% here in Northern Virginia this year. Uh, and, you know, I don't. Uh, I don't uh, you know, get too engaged in county level government and that's partly my fault, but you know, if, if a policy person like me, a tax person like me, isn't going down there participating in the meetings, I mean, that's part of the issue. So how do we per- get more participation from business owners and from individuals across the board to get to the root of the problem instead of just kind of shooting the messenger at the state level, how do we get to the heart of the problem? And that is something we've developed as a model piece of legislation based on what Utah did 30 years ago, called Truth in Taxation. Kansas just adopted it in the last few weeks, nearly unanimously in the Kansas legislature and signed by Democrat Governor Laura Kelly. So this has wide broad bipartisan provisions and and appeal to it, I think. And what it does is essentially say, we're not going to limit what local governments can tax. If you want to have a gold-plated high school football stadium, God bless you. You're going to have high property taxes, but people can decide whether they like to live in that district or not. That being said, you know, what truth in taxation does is empower individuals to have a voice in the process. So if local units of government want to tax more on property taxes than they did the year before, whether they raise your rate in your bill levy, or they just assess your property across the board more and have that huge extra amount of revenue through the property valuation assessment process, they need to notify every single taxpayer in that district that owns a home You have to have a public hearing around why you need to raise the extra taxes, why you need to have the revenue, what you're going to spend it on. Then here's the key is you have to have a recorded vote. So people, men and women that sit on city councils or county commissions across the country, they have to put their name on the line to say, yes, I'm going to have more property taxes collected from my county or my city through the assessment or through the rate process because we want to spend it on X, Y, and Z. And having that honesty as a part of this discussion and having put people have the political accountability on the line to say, I'm willing to say, I believe in this enough. I'm going to put my name on the record to say, I'm going to raise your property taxes. Guess what? You have a whole lot fewer people willing to raise property taxes and have that local government keep the assessment growth. And so this is going to be, I think, a game changer for the future of property taxes across the country when it comes to business property taxes and when it comes to individual residential real estate taxes. And once people are empowered to be a part of this decision making in Utah, we've actually seen property tax burdens over these 30 years go down relatively where the rest of the country has skyrocketed.
0: Uh, so let's all go buy hotels in Utah. I got it. So, so part of my ignorance, Jonathan, how does that, how does that differ from what's happening today in, I don't know, Georgia, Florida, California?
1: Well, only a few states. Axes
0: in the cover of darkness.
1: Well, in in a lot of cases, there's no recorded votes ever taken if it's just assessment driven. Sometimes, you know, if if the local government wants to raise your mill levy rate, they'll take a vote on that. That's the easy thing, because a lot of times they'll play this kind of, uh, in a way, I don't want to seem bad intent, but it's pretty dishonest the way that it plays out in a lot of cases is individuals will say, we just cut your property taxes. You look at your bill and say, why am I paying, you know, $500 more this year in my property tax bill or $1,000 more or $10? Thousand dollars more for your business, maybe, and it's because they're pocketing the extra assessment difference where they value your property higher, they reduce your rate, they look at you and expect you to believe they cut your property taxes, and you know better because you just saw the bill. And if there's no, you know, transparency and honesty in part of that process, and nobody ever has to take a recorded vote, which in the case of outside of Tennessee and Kansas and Utah, those are the three states that really are going to require a recorded vote on that assessment increase. That's the key.
0: So silly question here, but I'm full of a lot of silly questions. So if we just said that state and local governments revenues are were as high as they've been in 2020. So they were up. Oh, by the way, the federal government just uh, handed a bunch of money to the states. So they got full coffers everywhere. Why do we need to raise property taxes? That
1: is a great question. That is a great question. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, it's it's clearly a case where it's been a very difficult year for small businesses and, and businesses across the board, individuals across the board. Uh, governments need to live within their means at this point. They're they're not lacking for revenue right now, state or local governments. In fact, you've probably seen nationally now uh, Governor Gavin Newsom in uh, California even going around, kind of uh, living in the in the moment of having California seventy five. $5 billion dollar budget surplus on paper at least so if even California has a budget surplus uh, times are pretty rosy right now and the wall street journal editorial board the other day you know called out i think correctly so uh, all of this lobbying from state and local governments up here on the hill for the last year saying we need this massive federal bailout of the states we've been worrying about this realizing that because thankfully because of the reopening in a lot of the states you know fairly early on as people started to tear the reopening in a safe way we saw a third quarter GDP you know massive numbers there we knew the recovery as we talked to state legislators every single new uh, revenue reporting record, uh, period was coming in higher than expectations in the second half of 2020 we knew that this was not going to be needed and you know this has been and as we talked about, I've been doing this maybe too long because I remember a few other the business cycles as it relates to this. And every time the federal government comes in to bail out state and local governments, maybe the intention is completely right. However, the unintended consequence is always that federal government dollars come with some pretty painful strings attached with them for state and local governments, and, and a lot of times those strings far outlast the federal support when it comes to the aid to the states. We've seen this play out time and time again, whether it's the maintenance of effort requirements or other things that really tie the hands of policymakers at the state and local level once they take the federal money. And in a way, it kind of addicts the states to you know taking future money, and in a way, it rewards the states for not doing the right thing, not just during the pandemic, but for 10 or 20 years leading up to the pandemic that led to a lot of the pandemic budget shortfalls and pension liabilities that cause these states real fiscal stress before we ever had coronavirus
0: on our map uh yeah there's a lot in there uh to unpack and listen and you just came out with your 14th edition of the good rich states poor states which is which is a fascinating uh read uh and and so 14 years kudos to you uh I, i talked to some of the people in the office and they said we studied that in college so cheers to you very good. Why did make me feel old by the way? Yes, no, I felt the same way. I felt the same way. <laughs> uh, but give me tell me the lesson. One, tell me a little bit about sort of what it is. I mean, I I get it. It's sort of uh dividing the states up and who you according to you, I guess it's just according to you, who you think what states are doing well and which ones aren't. We can leverage a guess uh very quickly. But tell me some of the lessons that you think were learned even during a pandemic, which should have been a crazy year. What lessons did we learn?
1: Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's been a great project to work on. Really, from my first day at Alec in in two thousand seven, Art Laffer, who was Ronald Reagan's economic advisor, and then Steve Moore from the Wall Street Journal came and said, "We want this to do a project with you to give legislators and concerned citizens across the country a way to measure their states." against each other when it comes to business competitiveness, when it comes to good economics, when it comes to what are the policies that they have in place that lead to future growth or lack of growth. And so we came up with the economic outlook rankings and we've, by the way, for 14 years kept the same ranking system. So it's an easy apples to apples comparison and there's probably, listen, I mean, a thousand ways that you could rank the states against each other in different variables. And we chose 15. We equally weighted them to make sure we're not putting the thumb on the scale of anything. And people can you know, be totally transparent. And people can play around with it if they want. But you know, one of the things that I think we decided on was, first of all, Art Laffer studied this for 50 years. And he realized the things that we measure in the report, like tax rates and tax burdens, income, sales, property taxes, you name the kind of pre- taxes that A business or an individual would pay. We measure it. And then uh, regulation, uh, labor policy, things that you know matter for economic competitiveness. Liability issues is it was a huge issue over the last year. I know for a lot of hoteliers and, and a lot of businesses across the board is the COVID liability protection, something that we had Alec developed. So those are the kind of things that we measure, and we measure them because we know they matter for growth. But here's another thing that's really important: is I'm sure many of your uh, colleagues out there see you know proliferation of these different indices of ways that different groups measure states, and That's great because I think this this inherent competition between states is a valuable thing for those of us who believe in economic freedom, because it creates a really a market between states you raise the price of doing business in one state and lower it doing it another guess what people are going to move they're going to vote with their feet businesses are going to leave the high cost place and go to the lower cost and lower tax place. And that's healthy. That's that's what the founders, I think, envisioned with the idea that we have 50 laboratories of democracy today across the country. Of course, it was 13 back then. But the idea was is that states and localities would have to compete with each other. And that's good for all of us that want to keep costs down and want to actually have a competitive uh, marketplace, a free trade zone that the founders kind of envisioned across the colonies. And of course, fast forward to today, the 50 states. So I think when you look at these different ways of measuring states another thing that's awfully important and the thing that we do in rich states poor states is focus on the policies that state legislators in the 50 state capitals in Atlanta and the other capitals directly control, and so you, it's great that you know Florida has great beaches, and it's great that you know California has uh, amazing skiing, and it has Silicon Valley, and it has great beaches as well. I'm a Michigan native. We don't have great warm beaches when it comes to January and February up in Lake Superior. I can tell you that we're lucky if the ice is thawing right now, Teague, uh, in Lake Superior. But you know that being said, states have inherent advantages. Some have deep water ports. Some have things that legislators would love to be able to legislate they just can't so we focus on the things that state legislators control and those two factors is why I think that rich states poor states and our measurement is so valuable and why it really has predictive power to say you know the 10 states that were in the top of our index over the last decade or more they're some of the fastest growing states in America and we think that that will absolutely continue.
0: Uh, So give me tell me what those states are give me the ones at the top and give me the ones at the bottom. (laughs) I promise
1: they, this is. isn't an infomercial for Utah, but we talked about Utah's success like We're when, all with moving
0: to Utah, taxation
1: yeah. and get uh, property taxes under control. That's actually one of the keys to their success. They've been number one for all 14 editions of Rich wow. States, Poor States. And so Governor Cox uh, was just on Fox Business with Mornings with Maria this week talking about this. And, and they're really happy about it, as you can imagine. Uh, but a couple of things they've done, right? They do a flat tax on personal income. They actually went from a state that had a, a graduated tax system that penalized people and businesses for making more. They went to a single rate flat tax about 10 years ago. Uh, they did the truth in taxation. And another thing that I think really sets them apart that nearly every other state will need to reckon with at some point, especially when we have a correction in equities market again, is the unfunded pension liabilities. I briefly mentioned that you know certainly Plague Illinois and some of the the states that are really high tax big government states, Utah transitioned to what the private sector has 20 or 30 years ago and started to move new employees into more of a hybrid 401k style defined contribution plan where you know, let's face it a lot of folks coming into the workplace today are not going to stick around with one employer like their parents or their grandparents generation did and work one place for 40 years they're going to probably have 40 career uh, 40 different jobs over that period in some cases or at least maybe a dozen and so it, it helps with flexibility of long, young employees but it also really puts the state on a firm I think foundation for avoiding tax increases in the future and so Utah number one Florida big winner this year moving all the way To number two. Uh, Big uh, gain there. Of course, a lot of great things about Florida no personal income tax on on small business and personal income uh, and uh florida obviously has had that into place for a long time a right to work state state without a death tax many of the individuals let's say moving from new york and new jersey or the northeast down to florida are looking at those factors as i hear from a lot of the legislators in florida is no income tax no death tax right to work state big factors for for florida uh, ron DeSantis has obviously been a real uh, leader when it comes to kind of reopening uh, the economy in a safe way and uh, looking at different policies that matter for economic growth. Uh, Oklahoma and Wyoming and North Carolina round out the top five. And North Carolina is an interesting state because if we would have had this discussion 10 years ago, Teague, uh, North Carolina would have been middle of the pack. Uh, They've moved all the way, I think, from number 26 number five now in our rankings over the last decade because of some of the big things that they've done in the policy environment.
0: Uh, Such as? And I'm just wondering where Georgia is. I'm guessing Georgia's middle of the pack and how does Georgia get to follow North Carolina or the like? Well, good point. And I
1: just gave a presentation for a Georgia audience after. And these rankings are brand new as of several days ago. And so the good news and bad news for Georgia real quick, and I'll get to the North Carolina story, but you know, Georgia is, uh, you know, you're know, you right, now somewhat middle of the pack and uh, coming in in the top 20 at least, but you did move up uh, substantially in Georgia because I think it was unemployment insurance costs going down uh, after spiking for a couple of years previously and then recently legislated tax cuts in Georgia after quite a few years of not seeing tax reductions in Georgia. Uh, and, uh, and I don't know exactly the, the reason for all of that, I'm sure you do, but uh, you know, back, back when our mutual friend Chip Rogers was there as Majority Leader and Finance Chair, I know he had it on his agenda every single year, how do we cut taxes and make Georgia more competitive, and Georgia, you know, as a result, became one of the most competitive states in America. Over the last several years, Georgia had fallen down, and so it's nice to see Georgia gain some spots, moving up to 14 from, from 21 last year, so a pretty substantial increase. Now that's the good news for Georgia. The bad news is you're sandwiched between a couple of no income tax states on the personal income tax side in Tennessee and Florida. And Tennessee is always in the top 10 or 15. And then Florida, we've just talked about at number two. And then North Carolina at number five in the region. So an incredibly competitive region where in most regions, Georgia, you know, would be doing pretty well, I think, but you know, in the southeast. You know, that's not going to cut it at number 14 when you've got those kind of competitors around, uh, you know, just like you'd, uh, you'd think about SEC football, right? I mean, you, you may be okay, it, you would be a great team in any other conference, but you're not really happy being middle of the pack in the SEC, right? Uh, when it comes to uh, when it comes to North Carolina, though, under now U.S. Senator Tom Tillis, who was then Speaker of the House, Tom Tillis, you had the first uh, Republican majorities in a hundred years that came into power in after the 2010 cycle, and they looked at their tax code and said, you know, this is a Swiss cheese style tax code. The rates are too high. We've got too many exemptions. We pick too many winners and losers, and we need to come in and have real fundamental tax reform, and that's what they did. And they really did make the really remake the the North Carolina tax code, probably into the gold standard of tax reform over the last decade, in my experience of following a lot of the tax reform, nearly all the tax reform efforts across the states. They got rates down for everybody, individuals and businesses. They flattened out the rate, turned it into a single rate flat tax on the individual side. And this surprises a lot of people when I go around the country and in a non-COVID year, I'm usually in 35 or 40 states talking about these findings. And uh, you know, I ask people in an audience, what do you think North Carolina's business tax rate is? And they're like, oh, this must be low. He's really talking about North Carolina. And they think maybe 5%. Uh, and that'd be roughly where Georgia is today. But, you know, you actually look at it and they've got the rate in North Carolina on businesses, all corporate income at 2.5%. So the lowest of any state that has a corporate income tax. And so when we see the recent investment by Apple, billions of dollars in investment there and recent investments there around Raleigh and Charlotte, booming state economy, that's one of the big reasons why successful tax reform over the last decade.
0: All right, so let, let's take the assumption that, that you're accurate and correct in, in your rankings, and that pro business means uh, I don't know more businesses move there, and and they're better act, states are in better economic position. Let's assume that. I don't go to the opposite, go to the bottom of the stack. Why is New York and California and the like and Illinois why they continue to raise taxes uh, and raise taxes and tax their tax base, even if it seems that their tax base is moving and heading to Florida and Texas?
1: that's a it's a really good question it's one that uh, you, know, you have to wonder uh, you make in you know in our view the same mistake over and over again and they're expecting different results but the different results don't happen because you know based on our data and we just had the US Census Bureau come out to validate so many of the things that we've talked about because once out of every ten years Teague, at least Congress pays attention to what happens in the states and that's guess why? Because state legislators redraw congressional lines once every 10 years as part of the reapportionment and then redistricting process that everyone's going to be talking about in the coming months when the census data goes to the state legislators. But The early results uh, absolutely bear out that people are voting with their feet away from states with high taxes and high business costs and bad business environments, because in a lot of cases, it becomes overly expensive uh, for individuals and quality of life and families. And of course, now that employers have given so much more flexibility around workplace environments, and maybe permanently so in some industries, and certainly if you were living in Manhattan or Silicon Valley and now all of a sudden can leave your $5,000 a month rent and go buy a house for $2,000 a month someplace else and really upgrade your standard of living and be able to afford private school tuition someplace for your kids maybe and upgrade your quality of life. We're seeing that you know, kind of phenomenon that we've talked about for years even enhanced now because of the COVID environment and, and workplace flexibility. But you do have to wonder because you know New York just announced a, a budget deal in recent uh, weeks where Governor Cuomo and the kind of progressive majorities in the legislature have said, we're going to raise taxes again in New York. And this is after a year that the governor had spent coming down to Washington and lobbying President Trump and now President Biden for a bailout of the states to say, if I don't get federal bailout funds, I'm going to have to raise taxes. And that was his argument over the last year. And guess what? He gets tens of billions of dollars of our federal aid, which means you and I and our taxpayer dollars across the country going to New York to prop up their kind of big government model. And what does he do? He turns around and raise taxes on individuals and businesses as part of this budget deal. And you kind of look at that philosophy in New Jersey, where Governor Murphy did the same thing last fall and raised taxes on individuals and businesses. Illinois, uh, Governor Pritzker did not get his way at the, the uh, millionaires tax and the progressive income tax system uh, there. He may be coming back for other tax increases. We'll see uh, Vermont being another state perennially in the bottom five. And then Minnesota rounds out the bottom five this year. And that's a little bit more of a purple state politically these days. that you've got in Minnesota, you've got one of the only states in America now that has divided government, believe it or not, between the legislative branches. So you have Republicans that run the Minnesota Senate, Democrats run the Minnesota House, and you have a Democrat governor. And so it's going to be pop the popcorn, because I think it's going to be quite the budget showdown in a state like Minnesota this year. The rest of those states, though, I think are going to double down and just say we got the pedal cash. That's great. Revenues are coming in. That's great. But guess what? New York actually raised spending by 20% this year in this budget agreement after taking the federal cash and now raising taxes because they say they need more money after they just raised the spending by 20%. That's the philosophy, I think, that over, that's just one kind of year's worth in New York, but you repeat, rinse and repeat that over a decade or two, and it's no wonder why New York has some of the highest tax burdens in America is because even when times are good, even when they're getting federal cash, they're raising spending by even quicker amounts and faster amounts and then saying we need more money from the private sector and from individuals.
0: Yeah, I I guess you wonder what they're thinking, but they're doubling down on it. I mean, so they obviously believe in it. They obviously believe heavily. And anecdotally, I've talked with, at the risk of name dropping, but you've heard Barry Sternlake and and some of the other uh, high net worth, very uber high net worth individuals in New York saying we pay a massive amount of the state's tax and we're okay with that. Uh, and we'd even be willing to pay more if we wouldn't be vilified, if we weren't made the villain for being successful. You know, dare I say, thank, you, please thank us for what we're doing. And that's not happening. So they're picking up and moving to Miami. Barry's famously moved to Miami and other states, and his buddies are all following him. So I, I think they're just digging the hole deeper and deeper, it sounds like. But well, honestly, I dig- think uh-
1: You're right. And it's this vicious cycle because, you know, you chase away those that are wealth creators and business owners. And what do they do is they take their wealth. They're very mobile. Those are some of the most mobile people that are out there that can move on a drop of a hat and probably have residences in, in a few states anyways. So they can change their tax domicile pretty easily and go pay taxes in Florida and and 0% rate's pretty attractive relative to most of the rates in the Northeast, let's say, that are in the bottom end of our index. And so, you know, we shouldn't be surprised when they go, but then what do they take with them when they go? And that's really a question a lot of policymakers don't think through the second order effects or the third order effects, which is, yes, you've lost the business owner and the job creator. But guess what? They take employees with them. They take a lot of their business with them. A lot of that commerce, you know, all the not only the income tax losses that you see, but you see the sales tax losses because people are then purchasing their groceries and purchasing goods in Florida where they live versus in New York. And then on top of it, and this is one that doesn't get talked about nearly enough. And a few years ago, we did a study on it at Alec. And I'm happy to send you the link if you'd like to look at it, but What about charitable contributions? So when individuals that are anchors of community, that support the arts and support their synagogue and churches and and support other institutions in an area, when they move, guess what? They take their charitable contributions and many times with them to their new homes and the new uh, localities. And so that's a discussion that I think is a huge unintended consequence of big government high tax policies. When you drive out successful entrepreneurs, business owners, and individuals, your community suffers. And it's something that never gets the headlines. uh, And it's something that's so important. I think when it comes to public policy,
0: Uh, Jonathan, this is great. All right. I want to pick on some other tax things that are sort of potentially coming down the pipe. So give me your thought that I think are important to real estate people. It's certainly our hoteliers, but I'm talking cap gains, tax increase. Uh, I'm talking 1031 exchange and I'm talking uh, inheritance tax. Give me your, give me your thoughts on those three topics.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, all very disturbing uh, and uh, whether it relates to the capital gains rate, the step up and basis issue uh, or the exchanges, I mean, all kind of ways looking for to grab more revenue and all pretty damaging ways to do it. I mean, all taxes we know are to some degree damaging to economic growth. When you tax something, you get less of it, right? That's economics 101. Uh, And so that is, uh, you know, it's especially disturbing, though, that the kind of taxes are being looked at are some of the most damaging forms of ways to raise revenue. We all know that the federal government needs to raise revenue, states need to raise revenue to fund core government purchases. You know, we could argue about the size and scope of government all day long. I tend to think we do fine with a little bit smaller government federally and at most state levels. Uh, That being said, you know, we do have to raise some money. Let's, I think the important thing is, is we're, as we're looking at uh, additional uh, discussions here on the revenue side is you know, spending is at record levels, revenue is still at record levels, and the economy is turning around, I think we need to reprioritize and not look at tax increases first point. But if you're going to, let's not raise the most damaging types of tax increases that have actually the biggest uh, impact on loss of jobs and loss of economic growth. And whether you look at these capital gains type discussions that would, you know, look at, you know, real estate with the exchange issue, I mean, decimated in a lot of areas on commercial real estate, right, because of the slash year, like this is a, I think, economic malpractice to hit them while they're down and out right now by raising uh, tax, effective tax rates in, in many of these ways. And then you look at it from a overall sense of the federal capital gains rate going up. This is, a, and you look at the history of it. Whether you look at the Reagan years, you look at you know the the Clinton years when they cut capital gains taxes in the '90s, and you're Democrat, and then you look at the Bush years in in the 2000s. And I think you know when you look at capital gains rates, you can actually see my co-author Art Laffer came up. He became famous because of course the Laffer curve in economics is when you raise tax rates, sometimes you actually don't raise revenue when you raise rates, and so when you cut taxes, sometimes you don't lose very much revenue because of the the economic growth associated. And when you look at capital gains being some of the most sensitive to economic changes in behavior, you actually can see a Laffer curve effect in most cases that you, when you cut capital gains tax rates. In a lot of cases, you don't see a, a huge loss or in some cases, any loss in revenue. And that's what worries me is when we're talking about raising capital gains tax rates either the top line rate or doing away with things like step up in basis or looking at these exchanges, and we're actually not going to see a whole lot of bang for the buck in terms of revenue, but at the same time, we get the loss that we're hurting the business community and we're hurting individuals. You add the federal rate on top of what the states charge, which in many states like California and New York charge as ordinary income on capital gains anyways, and now all of a sudden you're looking at scenarios where some state capital gains taxpayers will be paying nearly 60% capital gains rates if the president's current discussion actually goes forward so huge problem for economic growth in the united states and you don't get a lot of revenue to
0: even fund the new government spending that we're talking about right now so i think it's a horrible economic deal because i'm going to put words in your mouth i'm going to finish your thought because people will hold the asset and they won't sell it and if they don't sell it then you get zero tax right that's right yeah because if you're going to pay 60 percent in tax you're why would you sell it right yeah, that's right. a slow transaction. And I'm obviously biased on the transaction world. We want transactions because everything happens in transactions. Lawyers get paid, certainly brokers, title insurance, uh, appraisers uh, uh, in the hotel space, franchise companies. It's a time to upgrade and improve the asset. It's a chance to keep everything up new and fresh when they sit there forever. All, none of that happens.
1: Yeah, that's that's certainly one of the threats or the other thing is, is you see the sell off just because of tax reasons and wanting people to get under the old rates before the new rates are effective. And we've seen that plenty of times in the past that, you know, the market has the expectations, you know, the the future tax increase won't take effect until January one or whatever the date and time. And then you see a huge sell off for no other reason but to avoid the enhanced taxes, which obviously not the greatest reason to make business
0: transactions just for tax reasons. That's right. Sell your hotel now. Let's go. (laughs) Just kidding. So, what are the odds of these that all three of those or any of those three get passed? What's your prediction?
1: Well, if uh, here's the current state of play, I think in Washington, is they're not votes on these things because they, they don't have the the margins right yeah. now. If yeah. they had the margins, we'd be they voted on already them last died. week already and they'd be all done. I think there's a sense of urgency right now from the Biden administration and, and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, the leaders in Congress, to get through as many of their uh, agenda items is possible and that's of course not unique to this group of leaders in DC you want to do that in your first year in power you realize that Republicans have a pretty good shot at taking the house I think in 2022 after the midterm elections and so I think there's a sense of urgency is let's let's get a lot of these packages done early on and that's what you saw with the stimulus package in march that was pretty quick uh, you know got road to the the finish line there they used the the tool budget budget reconciliation. That required only a simple majority, 51 votes in the Senate, of course, with the vice president breaking the tie. There may be another one of those with budget reconciliation out in the works with a simple majority to avoid the filibuster in the US Senate. So I think a lot of these will be streamlined here in the in the next few months, especially before the end of the federal fiscal year in September. So I expect a lot of this to be decided kind of yay or nay or some compromise between now and, and October 1st, the new uh, federal fiscal year. That being said, is if they had the votes that have already put it on the board and already be done and on the president's desk, we signed into law. So I think there's some hesitation on a lot of these things because I think members of Congress in a lot of cases are hearing from members of the business community and from individuals who are worried about these tax increases. Uh, they may not be as worried about some of the spending packages because that's at the end of the day, the federal government just printing more money. It has long-term consequences, but the short-term uh, more pain side on the tax side is not there. So I think the organized opposition is now emerging in a lot of cases on the tax front. And I think that has some moderate Democrats uh, right now wondering if I really wanna put my name on the board before a midterm election, if I've got a tough
0: district. So uh, I'm gonna make you predict. So you think spending will get passed, but tax increase will not, is that your guess?
1: Well, and we're already seeing that, right? With the ARPA package of a couple of trillion dollars added to spending and really added to the national
0: debt uh, without pay-fors in that package. All right. So now, all right. So let's pick on fiscal stimulus, monetary policy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tech, tax the Economist in you. So what happens? Can we continue to print trillions of dollars? Uh, oh, by the way, inflation and what kind of impact does that have? And how does any of that roll into the pockets of the hotel investor? <sighs>
1: Yeah, I, this is a question I've been asked for ten years, and you know we've, we've said you know this is the U.S. is pushing the limits when it comes to a developed world economy and really the world's reserve currency. Thankfully, that we still are with U.S. dollar, that we've been able to go further into debt than probably most other countries ever could dream of without having huge consequences. Yet, I do fear that you know twenty-eight trillion dollars of debt at this moment, and wildly going past that now with new spending proposals. It's pretty likely we'll be at 30 plus trillion in debt by the end of the, the federal fiscal year that we were talking about at the end of September. Uh, and, you know, when you go back, back, back in history, again, talking through the Obama spending packages and we were talking about this, this aid to states back then, I was looking at my notes and the federal debt was just over $10 trillion. That was one business cycle ago. T. We went from ten trillion now to probably thirty trillion by the end of this year. That's not sustainable. I think that's anybody, Republican, Democrat, Independent, Libertarian, Vegetarian. I don't care your political persuasion. That's unsustainable. We've got to stop maxing out the federal credit card. Now there's two ways to get to it. Either you start reducing spending. Uh, or you start, you know, increasing taxes. I think you have the counterproductive effects that we talked about with tax increases in a lot of cases. So you're not going to get the extra revenue on some of these taxes. Um, and then you have to, we have to get economic growth going again. There's no doubt about that. We've got to get to more sustained 3% plus GDP growth going forward. Uh, there's a lot of pent-up demand. I think this year it'd be fairly easy to get a pretty good year of GDP growth if we don't royally mess it up when it comes to public policy making with raising taxes and, and really muddying the waters. Uh, I do wonder though, in terms of, you know, we see the top-line inflation numbers. Now, you know, we've been talking about this for 10 years of the threat of inflation, the threat of new spending, the threat of debt going up. I actually think that we're getting to a critical point. Where we've seen the top line cpi numbers that we've seen in recent days get to pretty disturbing levels really quickly and then also i mean for those that are you know in buying commodities i mean certainly you've gone to the gas stations even before the the pipeline issue in the recent days but gas prices way up year over year, Whether you look at other commodities, whether it's ag commodities, whether it's lumber, uh, whether it's uh, metals, I mean, th- that's where inflation has been showing up for a very long time, even beyond the CPI top line numbers. But now that we're seeing that, and we're seeing even more, you know, multi trillion dollar proposals kind of coming out every single day, I do think we have to have a pretty serious national conversation of how far can we push this before we get really uh, dangerous levels of inflation. And the thing that we're me the most is you, you combine dangerous levels of inflation with no economic growth or, or a real threat of economic growth, and you get stagflation, which is the worst of all worlds. And that kind of goes back to the Jimmy Carter uh, era of, of real problems that I think are much more complicated to unpack than p- potentially we've seen in recent
0: decades. Okay, so my maybe my final questions, but it's how does this impact hoteliers? But I'm going to, let me prime the pump, give you my thoughts. So certainly we've got We've got, I guess, with trillions of dollars trillions of dollars being spent, we have uh, stock market at all-time highs, and we can see that as hotel values, not all of them, but many of the new shiny, awesome hotel values are at all-time highs, even with fifty percent occupancy and the you know low rates and et cetera.' We're, we got solid predictions on a solid comeback for business. But those hotel values are as high as they've ever been, arguably. And I think that's because we've had trillions of dollars spent and it's got to go somewhere, or printed, and it's got to go somewhere. So Wall Street and the institutions are buying, willing to pay whatever they can for the really nice, shiny hotels. We've seen a couple of those trades already. Um, I, oh, by the way, inflation is coming, right? Oh, by the way, wood prices skyrocketed. Oh, By the, by the way, the price of those commodities and construction costs are going to go up. So on one hand, sell your asset because values are as high as they've ever been. On the other hand, well, inflation's coming, so it's going to cost you more to build that same asset. So it's going to be worth more, right? If we're printing money, we got to own assets, right? Don't own cash because cash is worthless, own assets. But it's a fine line to figure out because, oh, by the way, again, we're still sort of empty in our hotels and the day-to-day hotel, you're still struggling mightily. Oh, by the way, can't find labor. Oh, by the way, lots of headwinds as well. So, unpack all that that I just said. What's your advice? What's your <laughs> advice for hoteliers? Well,
1: at, uh, those are all really, really good points. And uh, you add to that, you know, potential bubbles in real estate that we're seeing develop in certain areas, probably getting uh, really, really hot in Northern Virginia, I can tell you right now, on uh, residential sides. I mean, places flying off one day without going to open houses. I can imagine in, in some of the other markets, we're seeing a lot of the same things. And so, you buy into that? Is it a potential bubble? Uh, you look at equities, you know, are they overvalued at right now after the huge run-up? I don't know. I mean, those are all great questions. I wish I had the answer to those. I'd probably be on Wall Street if I did have the answer to those questions. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I th- and one of the issues that you uh, unpacked there uh, a little bit was, I think, really key and something that we've just seen of, you know, the governors out there on the unemployment bonus payments. I mean, this is a huge issue with the unfilled. I mean, Governor McMaster from South Carolina was one of the first out of the gate. Governor Gianforte from Montana, the other two that really deserve, I think, a lot of credit because it was not an easy political uh, decision to say we're going to decouple away from the bonus $300 a week payments, the federal level on unemployment. But you look at South Carolina, they had 81,000 unfilled positions in in the state. Governor McMaster said, we've got to get people back in the workforce where, Art Laffer, my author likes to put it this way, Uh, when you tax people who work and you pay people not to work, don't be surprised when you have an employment uh, situation right in a labor market problem. That's exactly what we're facing right now. And it's not politically easy to talk about for these governors. So that's why I give them extra credit. But when you talk to business owners, when you talk to small business, when you talk to hoteliers, when you talk to travel and tourism industry folks, especially with the tourism season in the northern states, when you've got a pretty limited window of time being a Michigan native, I know this very well, you've got a very limited number of days when it comes to restaurants and hotels. This is going to be essential that these businesses can function properly and so now with Governor Abbott's announcement uh, just this week we're up to nearly 20 states where governors have said we're going to decouple from those and we're going to actually allow people to continue on the state unemployment assistance but no more federal bonus because I think that's actually one of the key elements across the board is getting the labor market kind of distortions corrected early enough where these businesses can actually have a good summer tourism season and actually be in good shape going forward.
0: Yeah, I, I can tell you, uh, they're nervous about right now. That the hotel owners are nervous. They can't open up fully 100%. If they were 100% occupied, they don't have enough staff to clean the rooms, to turn the rooms. So they're only renting half because they'll rent this half today, the other half tomorrow, and they'll clean one set and then clean the other set. Uh, other little, sort of dirty little secret that people don't like to talk about the number of hotel owners, high profile hotel owners who are them, they themselves and their family members, mom, dad, grandkids, grandma. Uh, executive staff, et cetera, that are out cleaning rooms, maintenance, operating the front desk, because they simply can't find the staff to run the hotels is real, it's palpable. And I think that's gonna hold us back from economic growth to your point. We got a season coming. We know the demand is there. We've seen it, we saw it at a conference. The demand is there. The topic is labor at the conference. How are we gonna handle all this new demand if we don't have the labor? Oh, by the way, try to find an Uber today. And I think that's a trick. Absolutely.
1: Huge issue. I mean, we've got to get that solved federally, and I'm glad to see, even as Washington kind of uh, goes in their directions, the states are continuing to lead the way at recognizing the problems and
0: trying to fix it from a governor's perspective. The people at our conference that landed at the airport to come to the hotel that said, oh, by the way, I took a taxi. Things we haven't heard in a long time. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's changing, uh, Jonathan. Uh, you're a true friend, and i greatly and an expert. I greatly appreciate you coming on, sharing your words of wisdom. I learned a ton today. Uh, it's complicated topics, but uh, thank you for all you're doing. Thanks for being out there, continuing to to uh, I don't know carry the baton, pound the pavement. We appreciate all you're doing for us in the industry.
1: Well, thank you. Really great to be on your show and uh, great conversation. All the best to you and your friends and members across the industry and to any point that we can be helpful in working with our state legislators across the country to have good pro-business policies across the board. Certainly call on us. You've got friends here in Washington. Uh,
0: We need good, powerful friends. We appreciate it. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks.